You are listening to the Salem First Hunting and Fishing Podcast. Our mission is to connect with and actively engage Western Oregon outdoorsmen. Listen to this podcast, join our Facebook group at Salem First Hunting and Fishing Club, or participate in any of our club fishing trips, shooting events, or hunting trips. You are listening to the Salem First Hunting and Fishing Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We are coming at you today from the Endicott Farms, and it's an honor to be down here interviewing Nathan Endicott. Nathan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, you bet. I'm just so thankful that you gave your time and and everything to be a part of what we're doing. And we're excited to pick your brain a little bit on a few concepts in the outdoor space. I'm your host, Bryant. And I'm Eric. And our whole goal with this podcast is to connect with and actively engage with Western Oregon outdoorsmen. So if you like to hunt, fish here in Western Oregon, you're going to want to listen up. Our guest today, Nathan Endicott, as we've introduced, he is a very accomplished archery blacktail hunter. He also hunts other things, which today we're going to be less talking about blacktail, which is really hard for me because I absolutely love blacktail hunting, but we're going to kind of focus on spring bear hunting because it's the time of the season. We're going to share some local hunting and fishing news, some cool things going on in our area, and then also give some tips, but we're going to try to have a meaningful conversation about what's behind the beast. Why do we hunt? What inspires us? What do we get out of it beyond just meat and antlers? Because there's a lot more to why we hunt. We don't have any announcements this week. Be looking for them within the next podcast. We're hoping that we'll uh, be able to plan some sort of an outing. Uh, We're thinking maybe trap shooting, maybe another fishing trip. We don't know yet, but keep your eye on that and join us. Uh, We had a great fishing trip last time, which we're going to talk about soon. One thing that we try to do every episode is keep Eric and I accountable to our journey in the outdoors, right? Because we don't want to just have this podcast and then never actually do this stuff ourselves. So I'm going to talk about what I did in the last week, and Eric's going to talk about what he did. So as we said, it's spring bear. I've been looking, and uh, in just the last seven days is when I've started getting into some bear sign. And I'm thinking that Maybe they were still a little bit lethargic, not really moving around as much as I expected, but now I'm I'm starting to find bear signs, so I'm getting a little bit more excited. I have uh, probably four or five days that I'll be able to hunt over the next couple weeks till the end of the season, you know, because I'm balancing hunting and also pursuing a master's degree at the same time. Wow. And work and having (laughs) another baby. You got to make sure you say all that stuff too because you are busy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um. I just want to apologize at this point if the audio is a little weird, a little not as professional sounding as normal, is that I made a big fail and I forgot to bring the right cable for the third mic. So I just have to say it now because I I won't be able to hide it. Eric and I are sharing a mic. It's kind of weird, but just deal with it. And I have my hand on his lap. (laughs) <laughs> no, you don't. No, no, please, no. <laughs> we'll edit that part out. No, I'm gonna leave it in <laughs> to show everyone how creepy you are and what I have to deal with. <laughs> but the thing I'm real excited to share is that I got my first turkey, and that was fun. Um, I've always bought the sports, not always. I bought the sports pack a number of times, you know. So you you have a turkey tag in your pocket. I just never actively pursued turkeys. So uh, I was actually bear hunting in the beginning of the season and before turkey season started, I found a turkey and I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to try turkey hunting and uh, got real excited, watched all kinds of videos and listened to some podcasts. 
And then the first day I go up, it, it's snowing <laughs> in the spot I found the turkey. And I was, I don't know, that uh, apparently turkeys don't like the snow because I didn't hear a single gobble or anything the whole day. You know, I, I ended up walking 10 miles looking for turkey tracks in the snow to no avail. Uh, they were probably in the reprod now that I think about it, but... <laughs> roosting, yeah. Yeah, yep. All that to say is first, first ever turkey hunt, kind of a bust, but then I went back out, my second ever turkey hunt, you know, and it was hot. It was in the 80s, and uh, I hunted hard all day. Finally, it's, it's about 2.30 p.m. It's heat of the day. I'm thinking I'm done, and all of a sudden, and I, I just knew, you know, and made it happen. Wow. So pretty fun. Second ever attempt. That's pretty good. Yeah, I, I was pretty proud of myself. Um, so you were packing a uh, shotgun? Yep, what shotgun. Gauge? 12 gauge. 12 gauge. Yep. I had my turkey choke, number four, super X <laughs> uh, turkey loads. and Right on. How far is your shot? 30 yards. 30 yards. Yep. And none in the breast. So I was pretty happy about that. Was it like ambush style? They were gobbling away and you just kind of eased in? or No, I was already sitting. Okay. And I'm I'm actually planning on doing a full episode about this turkey hunt, but I'll give a teaser. Is yeah. I got to the point I had been moving from spot to spot. I'd sit somewhere for about thirty minutes to an hour, and you know, every twenty minutes. Oh, I sure, would, you're calling. Yeah, but then by the time you know, I started that at six in the morning. By the time two thirty hit, and I'm just sweating and hot, and I don't hear anything. I I started messing with my call. I wasn't really intentionally practicing, but I figured out. Oh, it's a box call. Oh, I can make it purr. Look at that, I'm purring. And then that's when the first gobble hit about 100 yards they away. They like that purr for sure. Yeah, and uh, there's no way it sounded like a turkey. I don't know what these turkeys thought that that was. Yeah, anyway, called in four at once. Wow. They were Jake's, mm-hmm. um, but I'm happy for my first turkey. It's awesome. Yep. And now we have a fan for the studio. <laughs> yeah, but that's been my week in Most the woods. Importantly. Yeah. <laughs> Eric, how about you? Well, my week was on water, but we just finished up with our Salem First uh, Hunting and Fishing Club fishing event this last weekend we were trying to hit those bedded bass they're in the spawn right now and they're guarding pretty hard so we just kind of didn't have a whole lot of luck I think the biggest fish of the day was three you know I was pitching out there and you could drop it right in front of its face I even hit a couple of them right in the top of the head with no no avail so it was a little tough uh, but I'm looking forward to this fishing season so it'll be cool yeah awesome so Nathan do you do any fishing yeah I do um I don't do as much fishing as I do hunting but growing up dad would always take me down and we do salmon or steelhead uh, or both nice yeah take me down to like south coast oh Um, okay we've we fished all those rivers but yeah more recently I've gotten into high lake fishing so I'll go oh sweet yeah this is the time of year but this year the snowpack is so high yep I can't really access any trailheads I can't Uh even get close so I've tried. Yeah. So I'm holding off on high lake fishing mm-hmm. and you got to beat mosquito season. See, you go yes, early or you go late. Rough. You do not go when mosquitoes get peak. And oh, that, yeah. that could be around mid June, mid to early June is when they get really bad. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I haven't done much fishing yet this year. I took my kids last night to a local lake and we were able to catch three uh, rainbows. Nice. Which is fun. Nice. Yeah. They're yeah. all planters. Some stalkers. Yeah. They're yep. all planters. Yeah, for sure. Sweet. And then in the last week, I actually was in Northeast Oregon helping a buddy hunt for bear. Oh, and cool. Yeah. This year, you know, has been a little late too with um, a cold spring and also a lot of snow and a slower green up. Yeah. And that green up's really important for the yeah. bear activity. And so with this, with this buddy, we ended up just the strategy was cover miles. So mm. I think we covered 16 miles pretty easily that day. We were at 10 miles at noon. Oh, like, yeah. And then oh, we, wow. that was a break to eat. And then we kept going for the rest of the day. Yep. 
And then uh, elevation, I mean, we were dropping down ridges, so it wasn't too bad. It wasn't like we were going to the bottom of any canyons. We were mostly covering ridges. The bear really do cruise big, long ridge systems. Yeah. yeah. And we did. That's what we cut. We cut bears that were just cruising for tracks. And you're just looking for a boar then that's cruising? I guess so. I mean, we're looking for any bear in that unit. It was sure. a, It's a lower numbers unit. And so we were covering miles to try to turn up a fresh sign. Yeah. And we only did yeah. find one fresh pile of bear scat in it it was like a few days old mm. and then all the tracks were melted out. There was one set of tracks that had actually in this unit, there's some private property where it dipped into. And so sure. we were like, that's great. But yeah, so we couldn't go after it, but that was the only, like that was the fresh track and it was within a day old. I hate how, how many times I'm bear hunting or even if I'm just deer hunting and I'm interested in seeing a bear and I find like a giant fresh pile of bear crap and you're like, okay, there's a bear here, you know, but it, I, I have yet to make anything out of that in the timber. Yeah. Um, you, you ever timber hunt bear or just that's kind of what we were ridges? doing i mean okay. we we're yeah we were in the timber mostly in order to then glass the opposing hillside that's open got it yeah and so we were running out these ridges in the timber that's when we we're cutting their tracks uh-huh. but there's no sign on the open hillsides yeah which is just odd well because they probably didn't have snow right so you couldn't see tracks you were just exactly. looking for crap at that point well yeah but they turn rocks and then oh yeah it's pretty Tear obvious stumps yep and then yeah. the other is that they leave a pretty good sized print bear do leave a good print in mm-hmm. the mud and this time of year, ground's pretty soft still and wet. Oh, okay. Well, that that's pretty yes. helpful. It's, yeah. yeah, remarkably, it's pretty easy to follow bear sign. They uh-huh. leave a big track. Out here in the northwest area where I'm Not hunting, I mean, that green up was later. I think that was a statewide thing. Uh, green up was a little behind. I mean, obviously, in the low elevation, I was able to sneak up into some pretty green areas, but soon as you get up i mean the snow that i was hunting in for turkey season that was only a thousand feet like that was foothills low you know and so it's it's just been kind of cold and wet but we've had some nice weather and stuff is growing pretty good rate right now i would say if anything you could look look at the positive of this year is that the animals are really going to be concentrated where the habitat's the best and so while you're saying that the snow is at a thousand feet, there are some areas that the snow is melted out much sooner and then it's greened up sooner. So those animals would be concentrated, especially the bear where the feed's at the best, you know, food source. So that's, that's one thing you learn a lot on years like this, where it's an anomaly because then they'll be there next year, even when the snow is not on at all. It's just because that's the best feed. So do you think the fawn drops a little bit behind this year because of weather conditions and stuff like that? Or Gosh, that's a great question. And I don't have a clue, right? Um, I, I'm not out in the woods enough to see when the fawns really drop. And and you'd think that'd be more affected by the November rut as yeah. opposed to the spring conditions. I think you're right. Yep. If it was an early or late rut and that is weather dependent too, to yeah. really concentrate or what got the deer moving, what put the does into estrus, all those things. Yeah. It's a huge, that's a huge variable. It's, but it's interesting. It's an interesting concept how age kind of plays a role in the rut yeah, and the cycles yeah. and it, are the cycles moving a little bit early, trending earlier or later. And to us, we only think within a couple years of history, but to them, to the species, I mean, we're talking about all of time. Yeah. So to them, it doesn't matter if, if things are a week early for the last 10 years, because it might go back to week late yeah. for the next 10 years. Yeah. And the que- questioning, if they even know the difference, you know, how do they perceive time? It, exactly. To them, it's just, oh, it's warm this is today. life, man. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. And I don't know. It's going to be weird with the the season's all going a week later, it's going to, there's going to be a lot of deer killed. I really think there is. So we'll see how that affects and, and in, interrupting the rut like that, yeah. you know, push it later. Yeah. Well, survival of the fittest, right? So all yeah. the bucks that are eager beaver and get out and start breeding does are going to get shot 
And so which already happens during already happens. regular seasons. Yeah. So it could push the rut back. That's an interesting yeah. thought. Well, so is that going to push the, the archery season even it does. further out of the rut? Yeah, I would say that's my number one pet peeve. While a lot of people are going to benefit from it, archers will actually lose out not yeah. only on um, what is prime time, mm-hmm. which is that Thanksgiving week, but yeah. the Thanksgiving holidays. So mm. most people have Thanksgiving holidays off. So Thanksgiving and the day after Thursday, Friday. And so whether or not you hunt on Thanksgiving, but you'll usually have that Friday off. So that's a three day weekend of time for yeah. most working, working people. Mm-hmm. So we're losing out on a holiday that is a hunting day. Yeah. That's a huge loss. Yep. So now I, and the other thing is there's another holiday, which is, um, it's veterans day. And so usually down South, I could go early on the Friday the day before season opens, which yeah. is Veterans Day, so I could benefit from that holiday as well. So it's kind of really making it difficult for archery, even to push us further beyond the rut and also giving up some valuable vacation time. Yeah, I really hope it's a one-year thing because, I mean, if, if it's continual, then you might even just buy a, a general season tag and write an archery hunt during that, you know, because of the about timing. It. Yeah. I don't know if, if uh, I, I don't know the facts on this, but I heard that this year was based on how the calendar fell. That's what I was told. I went to the ODFW commission. I raised okay. my hand. I was like, why is it a week later this year? They said, it's just purely how the calendar fell. And then within a few weeks, maybe a month later, I saw it on Facebook. Somebody posted that in the future, there's a there's a change that proposed to be adopted that it will permanently push everything back one week. Wow. And so I don't know if that's true, like will be true or not in the future because I haven't seen the future regs, mm-hmm. but that was, that was a statement on Facebook that was not connected to how this year is getting pushed back a week. If that happens, that's going to be a good case study to see just how much hunting behavior affects something as like nailed down as rut timing, because yeah. you know, the, our seasons have been generally in the same timeline for quite a while. But I have noticed in the last handful of years that first week of October has been really hot and dry. Mm-hmm. And archery elk season has been really hot and dry. Climate. If Depending on how much weather affects, because there's so many different theories on what really kicks off the rut. You know, and, and a lot of people, it's moon phase, which obviously is not affected by anything. But if, if we think it's weather, then that's already going to change the rut. And now hunting pressure combined with weather changes, it's going to be really interesting to see if they adopt that what kind of changes we're going to see in deer behavior and Absolutely. elk behavior. Yeah, it will, it will change it. I mean, we see it at, for elk hunting. Elk become call-wise, oh, yeah. right? So, yep. I mean, we already know that a human can influence the way that elk interact and behave by ca- talking less and coming in less. I mean, they wise up. It doesn't, doesn't take too long before now it's like every generation of elk knows what a yep. call is. And yep. You really yep. have to work hard to find a call I mean, from elk. babies, they're hearing it. And yep. they're seeing, you know, hunters pushing herds around. and yeah. And another thing that makes elk shut up that's kind of changing in Oregon is the presence of wolves. Yeah. It's a good transition. We wanted to bring to you the local news story. A couple, maybe it was a few weeks ago by now, and certainly more than that by the time anyone hears this, there's a confirmed wolf sighting on Mosby Creek just out of Cottage Grove. Nathan, I don't know how much you've heard about that if you happen to see it, but it was this short video of a collared wolf on the side of the road, right down into the dip that goes to Mosby Creek on the huge chunk of Weyerhaeuser out of Cottage Grove, um, yeah. which I, I'm pretty sure that's a permit-only area. 
But I don't know. The ODF, I, I'm saying that's fessed up to it. You that's know? what I saw. You saw that they confirmed it, they right? Confirmed they verified, it. yes, there all, are wolves in this area. Yeah, I saw Yes, that. and they confirmed that this specific wolf, because it's collared, they know is a two-year-old male wolf called OR-125 who was born in Douglas County. Because the wolf's collared, they obviously know everything mm-hmm. about this wolf. It's like their pet. They have a name for it, OR-125. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> so and they, a lot of resources. Yeah, so they confirmed that uh, that that is true. There's a wolf there from Douglas County, and Douglas County is not too far from Cottage Grove, uh, or or where it could have moved from. It's not too far, but it's still remarkable to see one in that particular location because we haven't seen wolves there. Yeah, and it it really just makes me think that we're gonna see wolves in the Northwest Coast area like soon. Yeah, you know, with with how much they've been spreading. I have some figures here. This is what ODFNW says there is so i mean depending on who you talk to we can assume there's probably a lot more than this um but at the end of 2022 so this just recently odfnw claimed there was 178 wolves making up 36 different either breeding pairs or packs Mm -hmm. so in that's in oregon 36 different packs slash breeding pairs that are established in an area 10 years ago they said there were only 64 wolves and only three packs in Oregon. So to go from 64 wolves to 178 wolves in 10 years, there's I mean, a lot that's more than a pretty that. big jump. If you have one locally here, there's multiple. I've seen a couple. I've seen four on camera in the Cascades. We're talking about the Cascades and local. Yeah. Northeast Oregon, where the population's at, where there's wolves everywhere. I mean, guys, it's easy to see a pack of eight sitting on a ridge. So Joe Lewis, Mm. he hunts the northeast corner pretty heavily, especially for cats. And he drew a spring bear and a cat and then purchased his cat tag. So he killed both in one day. He's a stud. He's a cool guy. I really like him. Yeah. That is anyway. What's his name? Joe Lewis. You got to look him up. Look up Joe Lewis. He's also doing taxidermy. He does like a lot of freelance type work, Um, but he's a really neat person. So he uh, got back into an area, ends up turning up both a bear and a cat, makes a stock on both within an hour and shoots both the same day. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. But Archery he, hunting? No, it's rifle. Rifle. Uh, yeah. I mean, again, with I mean, predators. I don't sound too disappointed, man. <laughs> with predators, I'm totally in favor of rifle hunting. I'll do it. Sure. I, I, I'm primarily archery, but I have rifle hunted mostly in the past couple of years. I never rifle hunted until I had my first kid. And then I had to explain to my wife that I was leaving to go hunt <laughs> for bear. And so the agreement was that if you just take the first bear you see and use a rifle, because then it would sure my odds. It would make sure. it nearly 100%. Quicker, quicker yeah. Job. Then she was totally cool with me going. Mm-hmm. And so that's turned into now bear hunting. I'll take a rifle. But so yeah, Joe Lewis, he got the bear and the cat. And while he was out there, he turned up eight wolves bedded on a ridgetop. And his comment on wow. Facebook was eight reasons why the elk numbers are going down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good point. So for him to see eight on one ridge, I don't think those numbers are right. I think that they're so far from the truth. And I think a lot of it has to do with how they consider a wolf, if it's protected or less protected. When you talk about numbers, the yeah, other is resources. Yeah. So they're going to dump more resources into that animal, that species, if there's less numbers and how do they verify it? There's no way to verify. It's a joke when they talk about blacktail numbers, because if you go to the ODFNW commissions, not to put them on blast, I love ODFNW and what they're trying to do here locally for yeah, blacktail, but it's very limited. They talk about having a couple of circuits that they'll do certain times of the year in order to proof how many bucks per doe are in an area. Mm-hmm. Very, very specific areas. Yeah. It's just not a true representation of what the population is. Yeah. And that's because there's not the funding for it. 
yeah, and and there's other things that I I mean I'm so conflicted because I I love the ODFNW. I'm in full support. Buy your stinking tags. Do not ever kill anything without a tag, please, <laughs> because I cannot stand that. It just makes my blood boil. Yeah. And I don't care if your money is going to the ODFNW. That's good because we do need to research these things. Yeah. But there's so many habitat projects that they're doing instead of predator management. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's such a d- highly debated topic because you yeah. can't extirpate predators from the landscape. Yeah. But you probably could have an effect if every spring, like in the end of May, if everyone killed a whole bunch of cougars and coyotes, maybe it could help the deer in a, in a specific area in the in the elk but then you know i hear about them doing elk habitat cleanups in the areas where there's wolves yeah what's what's really going to help the elk right exactly it's that predator management and what's interesting too is when i went to an odfw commission meeting and so they're just laying out the proposed changes for the upcoming year it's the local meeting it's not at some statewide sort of meeting. This is just our local staff, the local biologists. They're just kind of sharing what they do. They were excited about the different studies they're doing and sharing. But then from an onlooker, a person that's an avid hunter grown up doing this, to hear them say that climate change is one of the number one variables and what is changing the habitat and that our deer are less likely to get the prime feed source because they can't compete with the other species. So like the elk or something else that are eating up or the climate change, which is not allowing this proper feed for for fawn recruitment and fawn survival and it's like yeah. really which is kind of backwards from what they say is the clear cuts and the burns provide so much food for the deer and the elk yeah so it's like okay there's been more fires that should mean more food eventually should mean eventually yeah, yeah. With that yes i mean burns and cover and different things and management of the timber all those things help them survive They help them survive, not because better feed, but by surviving from predators, Mm. more escapement and more cover. Mm. Yeah. Because there is a ton of cats. Yeah. I mean, you can talk to anybody around here and they've killed. I mean, if they know somebody that has livestock, somebody has killed a cat that's already taken some of their livestock. It's really bad. And now we're adding wolves in the mix. So we already see it in Alaska and Canada, what the wolves are doing, and then also in Idaho and how it's spreading now to Oregon. And I haven't heard too much in Oregon about crazy stories of, of wolf um, wolves just mass killing, essentially, or wiping out an area. But it's about to happen. I, I mean, I as far as livestock goes, I've definitely heard a couple stories from Eastern yeah. Oregon. Yeah. Um, you know, anyway, uh, and on to the note of, of cougars, like, I'm glad that it's a 365 a day season and you Has can get additional be. tags and it's a cheap tag yeah so my encouragement for everyone listening is to get a cougar tag effort. and yeah don't don't just have it a lot of people just have it because oh what if i see one when i'm hunting but sportsman pack you know there's i i make an effort to do a handful of trips every winter and predator calling and whatnot to see if i can get something in i haven't taken a cougar yet they're a hard thing to find but you know have you taken one no i've never taken a cat yeah, I've tried. I've gone out intentionally for them multiple times. I've been close. Like I've seen them at 40 yards before. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's real close. Yeah. My dad has taken a couple. Mm. I don't know for sure. I think he's killed two with his bow. Both were calling. And then one time he had a cat. It was actually Thanksgiving day and he was out blacktail wow. hunting and he was in a sleeping bag. He'd fallen asleep because he got in real early before daylight. It was cold, put on a sleeping yeah. bag wakes up and he looks to his left and there's a cat at 20 yards and it's crawling. It's actually like stalking him. Right. And he's (laughs) of all things. Have you ever seen my dad wear that scoofy deer hat on any of my films or photos? He's wearing a deer hat. He's like a deer sausage, just immobile, 
waiting to be eight and this cat is belly crawling at 20 yards so my dad wow. says he's like uh i thought about getting my camera but it kind of looked like it was stalking me yeah, yeah. so i decided to pick up my bow instead uh-huh. and he shoots it at 20 yards he says the thing jumps 10 feet high That's tears scary. off yeah and because it was more or less a self-defense type shot not like the type of shot we would on a deer elk where it's the most ethical shot this was like a life safety shot uh-huh and so it hit kind of through i would say like the front of the chest like it might be fatal which is what we want but he was unable to recover the cat it they're pretty crafty and yeah i think it he followed it through snow drifts and out and in and out of snow for a long ways and i think he, blood trailing it, or just tracks blood trailing yeah yeah and i think it eventually just dipped under or hidden into something and they're so sneaky they'll let you walk right by i've heard of a lot of lost cats you yep. know for the few people that have taken shots at them well and the adrenaline side of it too i've i've killed two Oh, wow. And I killed two in the same spot. Wow. (laughs) Same wood pile at my house. Shot them from the second story of my house. Oh, my gosh. Don't ever do that, by the way. Don't shoot inside your house. (laughs) A little bit of an echo. Yeah, every single picture in our bedroom came (laughs) off the wall. And I think I was deaf for like a week and a half. (laughs) And my wife was super pissed that I poked the gun through uh, the screen to take my ethical shot. I think that's worth it. And it's actually very noble of you. (laughs) Saving the deer. Yep. Yeah. Well, it was actually saving my dogs. So they were actually stalking my two dogs. My wife comes home, says, oh, yeah, there's two little beady eyes looking at me from the woodpile. So I run upstairs, getting pretty dark out by that point, pick up the eyes, identify that it's a cougar. And yeah, smoke checked it from uh, second story inside the house. Awesome. Well, uh, so that is our local news. Wolves coming to uh, woods near you soon. So keep your eyes out. Make sure to be a part. You, you said you, you go to committees and whatnot with ODF and W. Yeah, I think reporting it is key. I think sharing that information is key. And then just keep yourself from trying to fabricate what's happening or you're seeing, but just keep it to the facts and then share it because that's the only way to raise awareness of what's going on out there. I think also when you find kills and you find evidence of wolf sign, I think it's important to share that too because while the staff get a lot of resources and funding to manage the wolves, I feel like, again, they're managing to keep the wolves alive, not to manage the game that they are required to manage, which is the deer and elk populations. The other thing, the last piece on that, if you look at over time with the elk numbers in the Cascades, they have basically nearly been wiped out. They're, the elk populations in the Cascades over time have been decimated compared to what they yeah, used to be. Yeah. So a lot of that is hunting pressure and also the increase of cat populations. And so if you wipe it out, there's nothing saying that these elk have to return to that habitat. So then it becomes a void or an empty space, empty of the wildlife. I pay for my hunting tags because I want to see the wildlife. I don't want to see the predator. So why are we managing for the predator that is technically at this point really an invasive species? The wolves that are being introduced are invasive. I would love to meet with the best biologist on it because I know that they're not from here. If it's not from here, it's invasive. Stop tampering. (laughs) That's the message. Don't tamper if it's going to make the system not recover. Man, I'd love to see more data on that because I've done research. I mean, my research is Google searches, but, you know, I've just tried to read article after article to find out. Here's, Here's what I've heard is that we used to have a different subspecies of wolf here, whether it was a subspecies of the gray wolf or not, but they introduced the gray wolves from Canada into Yellowstone, which have drifted in. And there's people who say they've been planted here, but, you know, that's... They were. Okay. And uh, so the thing is, yeah, I I haven't seen like any actual biologist fess up to or support this information, you know, okay. 
It has been. You'd have to talk to the right person. My dad's actually gone to all the wolf symposiums since day one. So he is like a breath of information. If you want to know anything about wolves, you talk to my dad. So yeah, they did. They pulled the wolves from Canada. So they're... the other thing about bloodlines, I mean, hounds, dogs, they are incredibly connected to their bloodline and what yeah, they're bred yeah. to do. If you uh -huh. pull a wolf that's from deer are bigger in Canada. Every animal is bigger than Canada. Why would you Moose. pull a bigger canine from Canada and call it a gray wolf? Okay. And then take that bloodline, bring it to Idaho where you keep it in a pen for a while to let it acclimate or something, and then start introducing it into all of the West. Well, it's going to do what it did up North. It's going to kill more things and stash them because it was preserved longer from cold temps during the winter. So it's going to be a better killer, a bigger animal, more efficient at doing so. It's not from here. <laughs> yeah. And then... Yeah, so my dad could talk for ages. The other thing is that he's gone to these wolf symposiums. On day one, they said that the wolves were swimming the river. That's how they were getting here. So mm. it was a little inconsistent. Yeah. And then later on, they did say, no, okay, so we had an initiative. It's been funded by the, the federal fishing game and that we actually planted wolves in the northeast corner. Mm. Homegrown. That's mm. how they did it. It was, wow. it was not here by accident. Yeah. So a guy like me who hasn't been a part of those who I've done you know, like I said, hours of searching. Yeah. I can't find that information on the internet. I can't find that information on a podcast. You know, it's just... Public records request would be the only way and you'd have to pay a fee. Oh, because yeah. while it is public information, it's a public entity. They should be able to release anything. They don't have to. Mm. They can say that it's confidential. And so the only way would be Freedom of Information Act yeah. is that you'd have to file Fight for that it. and then yeah. pay a fee. That's the only way to get that type of information and you have to know wow. the right person to ask. Yeah. Yep. No, that's huge. And, and you know... When we look at the wolves in the northeast of the U.S., those wolves are way smaller than the ones that they've planted here. Hmm. The eastern wolf, which is also called a timber wolf, hmm. um, but the eastern wolf, males get up to about 50 to 60 pounds. Oh, wow. So we think about people who say they've been killing 150-pound wolves in our side of the country. I would rather have a 60-pound wolf here than a 150-pound wolf here. All right. Well, enough talk about wolves. Let's get into our conversation uh, with Nathan. We're real excited for your insight. Thanks for what you've given so far. But Eric, you want to hit him with the icebreakers? All right. So we usually do five icebreaker questions just to get stuff going. Okay. But we've been talking for a few minutes. So we're going we're gonna to start it off with this one. Fishing or hunting? Hunting. Okay. <laughs> you kind of figured you'd go that way. Yeah. Baitcaster or spinning reel if you go fishing? Baitcaster. Man, uh, it's like, I just want to catch stuff. But however, like Panther. Martin, like if I flip that out, I'm going to catch a fish. And it's kind of one of those things where I like to just more or less enjoy and relax. Sure. So baits like the more enjoy relax versus a spinner or something, you're going to be doing more action, which is fun too. And we don't talk about fly fishing on this podcast. <laughs> so we don't talk about fly fishing, but we both got skunked by a fly fisherman at oh. our, at our fishing Showed tournament. Up or what? Oh man. He, he was like, if you're on throwing, point. Yeah then yeah you kill it because yeah. that's the you're tricking the fish into the most na natural native thing to eat yep you just that, got to be good that's exactly what it was this kid yeah. was pretty amazing to watch so. yeah it's an art bow or rifle bow all day dad owns an archery shop that's yeah you better. Shoe, i was a shoe in for sure traditional or compound bow my first love really is traditional bow. Yeah. When I grew up shooting, I always had bows that were more resembling a traditional bow because it wasn't really a compound when I started shooting. So then over time, dad would take me out to shoot nutria or some, or fish, mm. bow fishing. Yeah. And so I shoot recurve. So then I developed this, you know, skill. It's kind of like throwing a ball yep. with shooting a traditional bow. 
And then anytime I shoot it, I love it. It's just not as ethical. I feel challenged morally to use a traditional bow to hunt. Sure. Some guys can do it and they can be strict and disciplined. They're going to stay in their, in their, uh, effective range for me. I can't, I just, I know what it's like to shoot a compound and I want to push that effective range. I want to push it, push it because I'm the type that likes to push my boundaries. It's not good with archery. You need to stay, especially traditional archery. Blacktail or mule deer? Blacktail. All right. But I do love mule deer. It's just in here in Oregon, that opportunity is limited, limited. So I want blacktail. Yeah. I, I was kind of curious what you'd answer. Like I, I was hopeful and knew that you'd say blacktail, but you know, you, I've seen you've been doing some mule deer stuff lately. Oh, so. so fun. I love mule deer hunting. It's just. So the next question is coast or the ca- cascades to hunt in? Yeah, not the coast. <laughs> yeah, the coast is pretty difficult to hunt. I've noticed when I lived over there, the elk population was pretty decent. I move over to the valley and, you know, you don't see a whole lot uh, yeah. compared to over there. That's almost like saying, do you want to swim in the ocean for fun or do you want to go to the lake for fun? And because it's just a different type of fun. Like if you like fighting for your life, then go to the coast all day yeah i mean but no it's steeper it's rugged some areas have massive amounts of poison oak and then to stay on a hillside is pretty challenging it's so steep i'm just recovering from the poison oak i got shooting my turkey so (laughs) (laughs) yep i was out of the coast a couple weeks ago and i'm got poison oak all over my arms yeah and I i was just talking to eric like i never used to get it ever and then I went hunting in Southern Oregon down, uh, like way down by Crater Lake yeah. and I got poison oak in all the places you don't want poison oak. And yeah. ever since then I have been now allergic. You get it. Yep. And I That's get it. That's the way it works. I get it bad. So yeah, I don't know any of the science behind this, but I was in the Snake River unit and there's poison sumac, I guess. Oh and yeah. So I was wearing shorts and there's also these native rose bushes. So I was scratching up my legs real bad and I didn't even know there was such a thing as poison sumac or just a poison oak type brush out there and was just i guess it caked over my legs and it got in my cuts Ooh. and i didn't get it that bad but i had a person with me that then was like almost deathly flared up from the poison oak wow and so i just got it literally in cuts and it was all you my got hands. the hypodermic treatment yeah it was like <laughs> on my hands and my legs a little bit but not that bad just a couple cuts and then every since then i get it and every time i get it it's a little worse so it's almost like if you get it in your bloodstream then your body attacks it and then forms almost like antibodies to it. So then it continues to, oh, I we got poison it's oak, worse let's attack, worse. let's attack, and then it gets worse. That's what yeah. my theory is, but I have no idea. So moving the show along, uh, <laughs> can you share with us your favorite hunting or fishing story or outdoor experience? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, a lot of things come to mind, but I would say before I get to the favorite like story, it always involves my dad. So my dad got me into archery, got me into hunting, and so many, I have so many stories as being a little guy following my dad from this um, Eastern Oregon to the Western Oregon, just everywhere. I'll start with the first is that my first elk was with my dad and we were in the Cascade Range. We, the way it worked is I was like, dad, are we going to go this weekend? And he was like, sure. Yeah. I mean, we can go around here. It's not very good. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I want to go. And, and we only had, it was the weekend before what would be my first day of high school. So as a freshman in high school. So I was like, yeah, I'm up for anything. It doesn't matter. Like, let's go. And he's like, it's going to be pretty hard, like pretty hard hike. I, I just don't know of anything else. And I've, my dad was telling me that he had killed one of his first bulls back in this area. So I was like, I'm up for it. So we go on, I believe it was like a Saturday and we get to the trailhead before daylight 
hike in a few miles on a trail. We cross a river on some old growth logs, and then we scramble over to a ridge line. We climb up this ridge line through just lava rock, and we climb up about 1,500 feet. And then dad's behind me and he just bugles and then boom, we got a bull. And wow, so nice. Yep. I love that moment. Yep. And this was like one of those things where I was not anticipating any elk for the day. And you just kind of look at each other with big eyes at that point, right? Yeah. It's yeah. like, oh crap, you know, yep. like, you go forward. <laughs> and so, uh, so that's what happened is that I, I like kind of lurch forward like 10 yards. And so this pattern of, well, the bull wouldn't ever give me a shot because I'm pretty young, can't pull the right amount of weight. And also equipment was more limited when I was 13 or or 14 or 15 years old. So yeah, to shoot 40 yards was like bottom pin. This bull doesn't give me a shot. We pursue it, call it back in, doesn't give me a shot. So it was on time number three and dad tells me to go, okay, this time you're going 40, 50 yards out and I'm going to stay back. Well, that time the bull comes blowing in past me, like flying in and it gets to right up to my dad, like tip feet, like 10 feet from my dad wow. hits the brakes and is like, you know, sees you're not dad at that point. Yep. Yeah. Sees him, you know, face to face flips around the bulls running out and I'm young, never killed a bull. I've killed a couple deer, a couple bear by this point and with my bow. And so the elk's running by and I just go yeah. stop the bull in his tracks. He just <laughs> skids. It was your bear hunting, your bear hunting wolf. I, I guess. Yeah. I just woofed at it. Yeah. And then the, the thing hits the brakes. I draw back, shoot. And it was 40, like a 45 yard shot quartering away. Nailed it. And wow. the bull ran uh, maybe that 80 yards. Amazing. Yeah. And one of those things where I'm like shaking like yeah, crazy. Yeah. Can't even hardly think or talk. Uh-huh. And my dad's like, like, what happened? I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. I shot a bull. I think it, it looked okay. I think. Like, I have no idea. It's like trying to describe something that you've never done. Uh-huh. Like, maybe I visualized it in a million and one dreams and watching hunting. Yeah. yeah. But like, when, you ha- when it happens so fast since your first time, I have no idea. My pin was on it like I thought it was. <laughs> you black out. Yeah, you black out. Mm-hmm. You, you almost go blind. Hi- like, hyperventilating. Yeah. And so, my dad tries to get enough information out of me and, and basically like, well, let's go look for blood. I mean, you're not telling me anything bad. So, we go up and sure enough, there's some drops. It's not convincing. There's just some drops of blood. He's like, that's pretty good for right away. And I was shooting old steel force, 75 grain broadheads. And they were cut on contact broadheads. So it's a really long, just picture like an arrowhead. A really long cut on contact is an arrowhead, for example. Um, The other styles. Wait, does it only have two blades? uh, It had bleeders. Okay. But yeah, it's like a, it's like a a single, it's like a flat single blade, but then it had two little bleeder blades on the sides with steel force for pulling low weight. You wanted a cut on contact broadhead for youth. Less, uh, less, you wanted the force needed to penetrate. Yep. Less force. Exactly. Better penetration. So, so we trail for maybe 80 yards. Dad sees it first. He's like, there he is. And we get up there. And this is the quote that stands with me for lifetime is he says, I wish so badly that your grandpa Endicott could be here to see you with this bull. I wish so badly. And like that, like chokes me up just saying it. I love that. And man, just, just thinking of how much your grandpa's legacy meant to your dad and now to you and being in this room in the, I don't know, the clubhouse, whatever, what do you call this room? We just call it the barn. The barn. And there's just taxidermy all over the place of, you know, your your family's heritage in, in the woods out there. So such a special moment to hear that, you know, yeah. first experience. It's more than just the elk. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because there is, of course, people do identify and attach to the excitement. It's like you experience the excitement. 
but it's more than just the rush that you feel in that moment. There's so much more to it as being a human. What it means to be a human yeah. is that you got excited when you were successful or something that would sustain you. Yeah. So there's so much more to it. And then beyond that, there's this connection between all creation and humans, all things that were mm. created. And so when you have that bond with nature, yeah. you experience it firsthand, raised in it, yeah. it's very meaningful. That's one thing we talk about on the show a lot is just the deep intrinsic connection to the land that we have as human beings and how so much society has drifted away from that. The analogy that I always give is when you microwave a Hot Pocket, you don't think about the fact that the meat came from a living animal and that the cheese came from an animal and the grain was grown in the ground and how you're eating something directly from the earth, more or less, but you're putting a middleman in there. You know, you're you're so (laughs) separated from the process and hunting engages that natural connection to the land skipping the middleman getting your own food from this living creature that sorry but if you are not a vegetarian you cannot be (laughs) anti-hunting yeah because if you eat meat it's almost sickening to think of how many people are so separate from the process of where their food comes from right and how there's a whole nother level of perspective that comes from obtaining your own food well even mass nature. agriculture and farming kills animals you yeah know, different yeah. different variety it's not the cute you know rendering of a bear or rendering of a deer it's not those cute animated disney-like things that people attach to yeah it's shrews and mice and and different things there's casualties along the way but you yeah. know even if you say you're a vegetarian there's still some blood in the process so whether or not yeah. you want to have it on your own hands it's still going to take we that's been talked about by tons of people yeah yeah when i worked on the farm killing gophers was like my job in the winters i killed hundreds of gophers you know um i even got a bonus per gopher to kill more gophers (laughs) yeah and so you know if you look at a gopher right it's kind of cute you know so maybe uh keep that in mind i don't know about that (laughs) (laughs) okay one time i killed a pure white gopher and that was pretty cool but didn't have red eyes it had brown eyes Whoa. Like black eyes, like a gopher, but it was pure white, huh. and uh, we kept it in the fr- in the freezer for a while because <laughs> it was cool. Yeah, we kept yeah. that gopher <laughs> full body mount. Yeah, me and my cousin Jake Boone and Crockett. It was pretty great. Yeah, yeah, it was rare. But oh. uh, people who don't go into the woods and never see these creatures think of them as some sort of a sacred, mysterious animal, and they they put them on this level with the wolves, where yeah. they they don't want humans to be involved in that at all but humans are inescapably involved with nature and with all these creatures you can look at it two ways either for one we are a product of nature and we as human beings once lived in the woods (laughs) or in the desert or wherever humans came from as a part of nature or you could try to think well humans aren't a part of nature anymore but the animals that we see i'm even talking about here in oregon they were almost extinct not really that long ago but through human involvement and management the populations have grown if humans suddenly disappeared it's not like the population of the deer would go skyrocket through the roof maybe temporarily, but then the predators would take over. There's this balance balance. in the ecosystem that whether or not it's a good thing, humans are now a dependent part of that ecosystem that we deliberately control the populations of what animals are on the landscape through hunting, right? Hunting is how we control that tag allotment. And that's why we 
by our tags to fund the research to well, keep track of all that. Yeah, there's that at the state organizational level. So all the fishing games, but there's also all of the foundations. So Wild Sheep Foundation or yeah, Mule yeah. Deer, you know, there's all these different foundations that are proactive in helping, you know, promote the resource or the wildlife to return to these wild places because yes, it was nearly wiped out. There's a lot of good voices out there. Recently, I saw Jason Matzinger social media post, and he basically to spoil this clip down. It was a really pretty clip of him walking and looking at wildlife and different things, but he's talking about some facts here. And it boils down to like, if you like seeing wildlife, thank a hunter. You know, thank all of the fees that go into the harvest of some animal. And then even in Arizona recently, the statewide raffle or auction tag, I forget how they it was be auction. It was the highest paid tag in like all history for any wow. animal over sheep or anything was the deer. Really? Yeah. And it was some insane number. I want to say like $120,000 wow. for this one statewide auction deer tag. I forget the term. It would be like a governor's sure. tag yeah, in Oregon, yeah. but the equivalent down there in Arizona. Uh-huh. And so that's $120,000 directly promoting mule deer in yeah. Arizona. For that's one, a huge, for one for animal, one animal, taking one animal off the landscape. Hey, just a quick interruption. Uh, fun fact, the highest ever paid for a deer tag was broken recently in Arizona, but it was not for $120,000. It was for $725,000 in February of this year. So that's, uh, that's a lot of money for a single deer. To think about then the value of your wildlife. Yeah. Wildlife has a value. And so then if we're if we're promoting or not properly managing the predators, yeah. you know, it's taking away from the value that it is worth to humans. And humans, again, you said, are intrinsically tied to this wildlife. Exactly. Whether or not we used to be a part of the landscape or not, we are now. Yeah, you know, exactly. And we can't just back out. And so we need hunting to manage and create wildlife for the future generations. Yeah. That way your children can exactly. have that meaningful experience where you say, well, hopefully grandpa's here, right, with them uh, during that. That's what I'm about. Let's not remove humans from the environment. Right. Yeah. Message to the anti-hunters. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go ahead and talk a little bit, really timely, because it's it's blacktail or I keep saying black tail, black, they start with black. <laughs> it's, it's black bear spring season. Yep. Um, at least in the Northwest area are, are all the different areas running congruently as far as openings. Yeah. Okay. You've hunted black bear. You've hunted black bear with bow, which is, you know, for a lot of people, an extra challenge for everyone. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you, you found success in the spring bear hunting seasons. I was wondering if you, could give us some tips that you've gleaned from your successes in the woods. What are what are some of the things that you learned that you go back to, you fall back on? My experience has all been in open, high desert type country. So that's like the northeast corner. There's a lot of units up there that are controlled hunts, just like what we now have for like the southwest or the northwest tags. So my advice is going to be related to what I've experienced up there. I've been out for black bear in, on the west side, but it's much more rare. And I usually see it as an opportunity thing when I'm out in for fall bear. So fall bear opens August 1st. That's when I've hunted the west side. So most of it about the northeast. So with northeast, I've taken a few bear uh, with a bow, mostly as a youth. 
because the opportunity was easier to get a tag. The youth tags were more available. So dad would take me every year. It was 100% odds I would draw my bear tag. We would look for places that had uh, very, very long ridge systems. And off that long ridge system, there's all these little fingers that, that take off. And one side would be like timbered. sending fingers yeah. down into the canyons. Exactly. Down into the, the main canyon where there might be a stream or a river. And off of those, depending on what exposure, sun exposure, north, you know, south facing, east facing, west facing, it's always the northeast facing ridge has the timber, thick timber, and kind of the north facing. And then there's always an exposed hillside to it. And so we would look for those that had this long ridge system with a good timbered side and a good open side. So the bear felt, you know, their safety to re- retreat into the timber. And they would also walk that timber line and kind of eat. So they wouldn't be too far exposed without getting back into the timber for safety. So the bear typically would start low in the season and they work their way up to then eventually being primarily on top of everything on top of ridges where there's more timber then. And then it's, it's much more challenging. So you want to go early in the season in order to catch the more lethargic bear and also to target them when they're in that lower feed, more open terrain before they get up on top. So that's kind of the big overall, I would say, strategy. Is, is that applicable in areas where it's mostly just thick timber? Or do you, is that really only in that unique kind of blending of environments that you're talking about? No, it's also applicable in thick timber but where there's less openings. And then that way, I guess when you have fewer openings, those are what you would target, especially on the west side. So if you find that same sort of system, big long ridge system, very gradual in its climb, and then there might be a steep finger ridge that comes off of it, then you would hunt that finger ridge and look for the openings on it. Bear typically as high as possible without being out of good feed. So if you now, like you were talking about the snow melt happening later this year. So of course they're not going to be up. They're gonna be up as high as they can, where they could still have good green, you know, fresh sprouts of something. Bear eat a lot. There's like, you know, if there's a garden and a natural garden, they're going to be all over it. They're going to be eating the green plants. Cabbage and... Yeah. And and they're going to be standing just out in the middle of it eating or are they going to be sticking to the edge? Yeah. Uh, they are stick to the edge. Openings? They'll stick to the edge, but yeah, I mean, bear are like I don't know, they're weird. They're not the smartest animal, right? They it's like they can't, they can't see, see super yeah. well. They they can't hear exceptionally well. They just can smell. Yeah, and, and that was my next question is uh how much does the wind due to their smell mm-hmm. impact where a bear chooses to be? Are they smart enough where, kind of like a black tail, they're going to pose up? I mean, obviously, if they don't rely on sight, you know, with the wind kind of blowing behind so they can see down, or is a bear just kind of where it is, but it's always sniffing? Yeah, I don't feel like a bear is an animal that's going to set the wind in their favor for survival. It's like they're not really, af- they didn't really adapt to be afraid of anything. They're kind of just loofing around, you know, like just like, what is going on with that thing? Yeah, I, I would say instinctually they want to be near trees because tree is their safety. They run up the tree and then boom, that's safety. So it's like they don't set up the wind in their favor. They're just goofing around, milling around, eating stuff, having a good time, but they want to be next to a tree so that yeah. when they do sense a predator, which probably was a cat or a wolf or something like that, they run up the tree and they can elude them. Uh, so, have you seen boars, big boars climbing trees? Or- yeah. Just, oh yeah. Every bear zipping right I've up. ever seen has also been up in a tree. Like not, sorry, there's 
like there's no bear that I haven't seen that ha- would also be able to climb oh, a tree. Okay. Like, like if you I jumped in, you like, got close. Man, wow, you shooting them out of but trees? A big boar, <laughs> I have. I've oh yeah, a, I've shot a couple bear out of trees. Wow, that seems really hard to find the shot placement and everything. Yeah, one of them was um, standing, so it kind actually had its out. arms. Yeah. It was actually pretty easy. It's like, it yeah. was like inviting you me to kind shoot of pick, it. Pick the spot, yeah. right? poke it in the... Board. And I was on an adjacent hillside. So kind of like, you know, nearly at level. It was actually not very technical. You, and that's why it ran up the tree? Yep. Got it. Yep. And it was a smaller bear. It was like 150 pounds. But basically, I didn't, it wasn't a super technical shot either. Um, and then I've had sows go up a tree quite often. Um but yeah, I guess a big boar, not commonly, but I have seen boars climb climb trees. But then they, the bears they get down that I've experienced, they just have made. I've never seen one <laughs> climb a tree. They just make a beeline. You yeah, just see just their butt here. going over the hill and down yeah. into the draw. Yeah. Um. So, it, hmm. do you when you're walking around bear hunting, do you hear them climb up the tree? Do you not sense them at all until they're already in the tree? Are you looking up as you're walking around? Usually it's like, that's when you're seeing them for the first time is like, what's that noise? Got Man, it. that's a super loud racket. My dad shot a bear out of a tree. I was with him in the high country and we're hiking down a ridge and no, we did see it first. We saw, I saw something that could have been a deer. It was like, I took my, I saw a black butt. It was weird. I, I can't, I don't know what I saw yeah, exactly. Yeah. Next thing you know, it's, it's up a tree. And my dad's like, do you have a bear tag? I'm like, no, I didn't buy one this year. I was in college poor. Oh man. Yeah. It was <laughs> over 10 years ago. 1650. Like, <laughs> yeah right yeah it's nothing to buy one but i mean again i had like a couple days i was a distance runner in college so i came home yep. for a weekend yep. i wasn't supposed to be More hunting about the time yeah <laughs> and then i was just out for a weekend end up getting a buck and my dad oh, got a bear wow yeah, on that same day that's yeah. a cool hunt wow yeah we, yeah we have a little film of it it was called like a buck and a bear um my okay dad, yeah on your youtube no oh um secret secret we, film we've been filming <laughs> ever since yeah day one always just with really bad cameras so it's not worth sharing <laughs> got it got it more just, for the for the memory it's bank. the family yeah. it's the family video we didn't like we filmed christmas and stuff um but we were also <laughs> we were filming the hunts that was the family video it wasn't like you're filming the soccer game you were filming what you did on the weekend hunting well and your legacy goes back to your grandfather that's right starting back in the late 40s correct and even before that yeah that's kind of what i base my film established date on is grandpa it it my established date on it only means something to me. It's that my grandpa Endicott started photography and filming um, before really the technology. Like it was the earliest stuff, and he took amazing photos. And he also had film on reels, which unfortunately we lost. Yeah, I'm really bummed about that. Uh, but uh, it was kind of in the basement over here at the place, and then lost track of it. Um, that's a bummer, but I really wanted to recover that film and use it and see what it was. But all I have right now is slides. So I do, I, back in high school is when I first, we uh, inherited all the slides. And so I went through and looked at them all and, but yeah, grandpa took some pretty awesome photos and some really cool places in Oregon and he covered it all. And he would go in with a pack string of horses and mule. And so, I mean, he got oh, after yeah. and kind of camp, camp out and Every major range what, in Oregon. What was it in him that inspired him to begin filming and photography, fo- fo- <laughs> taking yeah. pictures? What yeah, do you think? Photography, yeah. Um, wow, that's a great question, and I don't know. Yeah. Uh, my my dad might be able to explain. Like if you could speculate, like, is there something about filming for you that, like, what drives you? 
personally, if not your grandpa, what drives you to want to film and capture those moments? Yeah, again, it's because like I'm so passionate about sharing it and I've always wanted my you know, siblings, my parents, now my kids to be able to see what we do. It's like just as much again as filming the the kids at the soccer game with your phone or whatever. That was hunting, so it was very much the same thing. And so for me, it was that it has always been there. It's like something that we did from day one, and it was it was we plugged it into the TV, and we dad was excited to share about his hunt. So that's one part of it. I mean, that's a really big question. I could probably talk a lot more about it. Sure. Well, and and on that, um, since it kind of spawns from a more personal family related influence. How has it felt to kind of see more recognition in your films Hmm. and, you know, you're getting more popular on social media and YouTube and and you're part of the full draw film tour. How has that felt? Um, Cause it's kind of a different intention at that point. Right. Yeah. How has it felt? Well, it like anything in life, you do have that sense of like, you feel appreciated or your work feels valued. If you look at it at a point of view of it's like work, then yeah, it feels good that people would recognize it and say, Hey, good job. Well, it's something you're creating. It's something you're creating. Right. And so for me, it was always that you could take something raw and that had really no meaning. I mean, otherwise all it is, is just some digital created imagery that lives on a piece of plastic. Like it is very, very raw. It's like a tree that could eventually be milled down, processed into lumber and used to build a home. So you can do something with that raw material or you can let it sit. So for me, it's always been like, how do I create something meaningful and special that might make a difference in somebody's life with this raw material? And then it's to me, it's that creativity of like, wow, I have this huge opportunity to do something for someone it doesn't matter if I'm promoting hunting, which I definitely, that's what I'm about, but also to encourage, like I want to encourage people to have a positive life change from the outdoors. My whole life mission really is to encourage and promote positive life change and people. So that's also with my work. I chose a water utility. I'm a civil yeah. engineer. So I design water systems. You turn on your tap. That's because some engineer or some people have operated the system in order to ensure that you have that availability of water. So that's a purpose there. So same with my film and editing is that I put, I'll do every attempt to put some little life-changing nugget in there. So somebody might feel a difference. And every once in a while people come up to me and say, Hey, I really value what you did with that film beyond Mm. just killing something. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just killing something. A lot of my films, I don't even get the shot on film. Well, a few of them I have by absolute luck. But really, it's that I want to make a film people feel they got something out of it, either encouragement or they learned a little bit more about hunting or they felt encouraged to go hunting harder, more to whatever standard they may dream up for themselves. And I totally see that in your films, too, because, man, those videos of people just driving from gate to gate, looking in clear cuts to snipe a deer at 300 yards I mean, it just doesn't have the same, I guess, vibe would be the yeah, word, you yeah. know, like I, That's I really I see your it. love and respect for the animal, the environment, um, for the, the craft, the skill of, you know, stalking a deer or still hunting a deer yeah. versus, you know, road hunting a deer, Yes. you know, so you being able to reflect that in your films to the general public, not only shows your heart and your love for it, encourages other hunters in that, but it's a good face for the world to see hunting as that pursuit of an animal over just 
whack them and stack them, which yes. I'm not a fan of that mentality. No, that is that is definitely a message that's out there. And while I, again, I don't, one another thing I'm all about is like, I don't want to critique how others do it, but I do hope that with my own voice, I can promote, I think, uh, another way to look at it. You yeah. know, the approach that I feel is more ethically and morally valued when you're out there doing it yourself. And this is the other piece is that, I mean, a lot of things are coming to mind right now. So it's hard to articulate all into just one coherent sentence or two or sure, three. Sure. But so first I want to say my number one, my first film that I put on YouTube, anything that somebody could watch, I was purely in the editing mindset that I wanted my mom to see it. I wanted my future kids to see it. Yeah. So that was film number one. And so it's not stored, super good. Stored it on YouTube. Yep. Stored yeah. it on YouTube. It was a document management system for me. And I try to do things the best I can. So at that time, with the limited cameras, with the limited editing, it was the best I could do at that time. And then I was a really serious competitive athlete. So every time you laced up or every time you stepped on the track or the court, I was going to be a little better. I was competitive. So that's with filming too, is like, while I could stay the same, I feel this desire to always improve, sharpen your skills. Everything in creation is going somewhere. So my view is that I am also going somewhere. Every day is another opportunity to live your life to the full. So that's how I edit too. So every film I'm trying to do a little better. So that's a little backstory on why Why are you making more films? Why are they a little bit better? Why are you not just doing the same thing? There's intentionality behind it. It's yes. not just something that's happening. Yeah. yeah. Try to have purpose and meaning in it because it's not work for me. This is all purely for fun. Yeah. Like it's my joy to do it. And that's a huge thing. It's just the culture nowadays. We have awareness of people in the outdoor space. People who make great videos or who have great things to say, we're aware of them, you know? And so like we think of some of these people and you find out, oh my goodness, he has a full-time job. You know, how is, I thought he was making his money off of hunting, <laughs> you know? And, and, uh, you know, I've, I've kind of known that you had the full-time job, yeah. but for you to be able to have that balance of family and work and making yeah. videos, that's time consuming editing yeah. a video. Um, let alone filming it, which it's kind of dual purpose because you're hunting and filming. Yeah, I can't. I can't imagine how hard that must be for you to be able to divide your time up between all these things. Yeah, it's, I wouldn't say it's for everyone. I'm just. I was the way I was raised. I was raised to put in a lot of work. So for me, yeah. it's all about that effort, and I just can't divide it out of me. Like there's no way I could yeah. give any less. Yeah, I'm curious with your passion and love for the outdoors and even filming everything that we've talked about here behind the success of the hunt and the payoff of, of like these epic films and these great memories, we've already touched on it quite a bit, but maybe more succinctly, what is the true motivation behind your life in the outdoors? Yeah. And again, we've touched on it and I feel like, again, life is so short to think that any day is just mundane and it's just cyclical. Like it just repeats. There's no meaning would be selling your life extremely short. Some people tap into like their true, you know, humanity and live life to the full. They don't always know how to communicate it. There's people that we see in the spotlight. They got in the spotlight for some crazy reason and people respect it and identify with it because they're living life to the best they can. There was a couple books I read around 2011 that really was helping shape that message, that human message and what we're here to do and what we were created to do. And um, those books have really helped me align how I think about my time in the outdoors. Who we are 
is so much more important than just the things we do. And so when we go out in the woods, this is a time for solitude and I believe connecting with our creator. It's that we're breathing hard, we're, we're tapping into that survival instinct. We're made to survive and to thrive as humans. So like when we're out and we're really testing our limits and we're, we're breathing hard and then we get lucky and are successful, we put in that effort um, and opportunity, we seize it, it is overwhelming. And that whole experience, the whole process, bringing it home and then living off of that animal. I mean, that, yeah, that ties it all together is that I believe we were created. I believe that God gave us the ability to do this. And when we get to experience it, we feel that true meaning and joy of life. And so without that outlet for me, and when my wife is 100% on board with this, she knows, she's like, you you need this time. And it helps you kind of more or less center with your life. And I feel like that's mm-hmm. where I connect with God and I could breathe deep and really think about things in life. And then I come home and I'm ready to be a good dad to a little bit better degree. And I feel like I grow out there. It's like, you don't always sharpen by talking with other people, which is yeah. great, but you can sharpen by being out and challenging yourself. It comes down to your character. Yeah. Like yeah. if you give up, if you just say, no, I'm throwing in the towel, you would die. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you would just die out there. So it's like without really testing your limits and what you're made of and just being comfortable in your skin and just knowing that you're going to be okay. You're trusting yeah. God that, yeah. you know, he put you here for a reason. If it, if you weren't meant to be, then you weren't meant to be. Like you you might not make it that day or something, but no, you trust that God put you here for a reason. You're going to give it your best. You're going to do the best you can. You come home and you share that more or less like enlightenment or that feeling mm-hmm. and encouragement. And I share it with my wife, with my kids. And that hopefully, you know, rubs off as being the parent. And my kids, yeah. they see it. They want to go. Like yeah, my son's yeah. obsessed about it. My daughter yesterday said, can we go fishing tonight? Nice. I, didn't, I didn't say anything about fishing for weeks. Yeah. She just comes up, can we go fishing? So we did. But you know, if there's something that you said that I, I just really hope anyone listening really latches on to is the whole point of, of purpose that you were made with intentionality and there's a reason for you to be on this earth. And for people like you and me and Eric, we discover so much of that purpose by being in the woods. Have you ever heard of the book called Sacred Pathways by Gary Thomas? Haven't. He's the same author that did the whole love languages concept. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's similar to that because yeah. it's the sense of like what spiritual pathways do each of us connect with God? Mm. And one of them is he, he dubbed it the naturalist, which I strongly identify. It sounds like you do too. It's like all the noise and conversations and all this stuff that we're trying to do and accomplish that just makes us busy and less able to hear from God and connect with him, yeah. you know, and, and going to church on Sunday morning and worshiping, like that's one way to connect with God. And, and we need those, that time of community with the believers, yeah. but being in nature surrounded by something that is so much bigger than yourself. Yeah. And so much closer to how God created the world. Yeah. You know, as, as much as like it being on the coast range, everything's been logged and clear cut and it's factory forest, but there's still something natural uh, that's, it's been allowed to go wild and, and I'm out there. It's just me and the animals and the Lord right. and being able to hear from him and, and, and seek that purpose. Like why, why am I here, God? Why did you create me? I, I hope that anyone listening to this can latch onto that message. Yeah, no, I think it's a good one. It's powerful too. I mean, to know that you have a purpose, you're created intentionally. Everyone was. So and then it's just being able to really identify with what you were made to do. And some of us, again, it's through people. Like, it's through that community. Yeah, yeah. And then some, it's, we really appreciate the outdoors and being in it. Yep. And I have a feeling that anyone listening to this who's made it to this part of the show is one of those people. 
yeah. who there's something deeply spiritual and important to us being out there in the mountains. Yeah. And I think for a long time, hunting and fishing kind of got a bad rap within families because it was like, oh, that's a time suck, right? But it sounds like in your case, your wife's fully supportive. Yeah. You guys probably hunt together. Yeah, we have, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it's great. I mean, she's on mission with you. That's right. Yeah. My wife's like my number one supporter to let me do this stuff. And with that, I also feel like I owe her a great deal of respect in order to make the most of it. So that sacrifice she makes, then I then would also make the same for her and that I'm, I'm doing everything I can. I'm not out like when you said that, I mean, yeah, it's like everyone has their own vice or something. And so for males over time, like hitting the bar or something after work or, or it's like, yeah, getting out with your buddies and drinking beer and driving around the woods and shooting stuff up with your, <laughs> like there's all <laughs> these things I think gave the outdoorsmen maybe a bad rap just to get out of the way, get away from the fam, wife and kids, but yeah. rather I take the wife and kids right into it full force. And then, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then at times when I was like, you know, maybe you just go on this one because yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of work and the way we uh -huh. do it is to really get out there. So, but and, she does and that's appreciate a really it. important point too uh that's what how we need to see it and you know it, it's totally valid in your case and and i relate to that too is me going out solo is a recentering on god that will yeah. hopefully benefit me and help me be a better man a better husband a better better father but then if you are only leaving your family behind and you're constantly hunting like what you're saying bringing them along causes it to be a unifying experience for your family and getting them into it and I'm married to a non-hunter, but we still have done stuff together. She'll help me go put up trail cameras um, yeah. or even go hunting with me a couple times a year. And uh, I have to be very careful that I don't neglect my family for hunting. Right. And as soon as she starts complaining like, oh, you're being gone again, you know, that's when I realize I'm doing something wrong. That yeah. That's what I think what Eric was hitting on too is when when your wives and children begin to feel neglected because you're spending all your time hunting instead of being a father and a husband. Right. The same thing happens with workaholics. The same thing happens with, yeah. like you're saying, addicts or people who go to bars all the time. Yeah. Is, uh, you know, bring your family into it. And for anyone out there who their wife is complaining about them being gone all the time, bring them into it if they're willing. <laughs> you know, like I said, yeah. I'm, I married a non-hunter. I married a person who had never been camping before... We started dating, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, so, learning curve there. Yeah. Yeah. And I literally invite her on every hunt, even if I have to not be successful and bend all of the rules on how hard I hunt because I want them to be involved or invited. And it's usually my wife's like, nah, I'm going to stay home because it's easier <laughs> with the kids. So, but I'm always giving that option. It's always an open door to go. And I'm never saying this is a me thing because it's not. For me, it's always been about sharing that experience. However, I'm way more successful and I can get it done in half the time if I go by myself. So, yeah. and again, yeah. I, I want to be out there regardless. Mm -hmm. Well, that's awesome. Great ending to our episode. Some encouragement out there for the fathers and husbands who, you know, might, might look to your videos and just wonder how you do it. And, you know, it sounds like making them a part of the process and helping them to find that same love that you have. So they want you to be out there. 
and they want to be out there as well. That's great. Um, Eric, do you have any closing thoughts? Man, we're just really, really appreciative, not only of your time, but your willingness just to drop some knowledge on us, you know. And some wisdom. <laughs> wisdom, for sure. And it seems like you kind of model, uh, you know, once a teacher, always a student. I just noticed that within five minutes of meeting you. That's just important, and I see people are actually learning, and they're not just learning about hunting and fishing. They're learning about family. They're learning about ethical kills. They're learning about spending time outside. I really appreciate it, and thank you very much. Thank you. If anyone is listening to this, uh, keep an eye out for the Full Draw Film Tour. So the one here in Springfield is this Saturday, which the podcast will not be released before that. But it sounds like you guys are getting pretty close to sold out. Uh, I'm not really sure on the numbers, but okay. yeah, we'll have a good turnout yeah, yeah. here at the but farm on for Saturday. For any future, you know, look at Full Draw Film Tour. Are there any uh, other places you want to point people? Uh, really, you just go to the website. Sweet. And uh, endicottfilms.com, really great website <laughs> that is not cluttered in any way, which is awesome. It's a landing page. You got your YouTube and your Instagram there, Nathan, yeah. for you. So yeah. uh, make sure uh, to check out Nathan's stuff that's going on and support his, his vision for all this. Thank you. Nathan, thank you for being on. Thanks, Looking guys. forward to talking to you again. Yep.